I'll make some apologies right up front for my voice. I, I think it's that time of year for uh, my allergies to kick in, and it usually wreaks havoc on my vocal cords. I'll do the best I can to, uh, to be as clear as I can, um, but hopefully you'll get involved so much in our passage that you won't even notice. We're in Galatians chapter 2. If you take your Bibles and turn there, uh, we're looking at verses 11 to 14, and specifically 14, as we are making our last few comments on this particular passage, this wonderful passage. As you're turning, let me say that today begins the, or being the first Sunday of the month, we have our fellowship dinner immediately following our worship service. We have one uh, also every third Sunday, and it's such a wonderful time, isn't it, those of you who who participate. It is such a, a glorious time to sit and eat and fellowship and talk. There's just something about a meal that makes gatherings even more special and memorable and relaxing and enjoyable. What if we had certain requirements that all had to meet before joining in? I wonder what you would think about that. Requirements? Well, yes. For example, you had to be an American. You know, God bless America. Now, if you're not American, then you have to naturalize and, of course, show proof that you have citizenship at the door. And if you speak English as a second language, well, then you need to pass a proficiency test, which we're only too happy to provide. If you serve our armed forces, well, you're not only in, but you get to go to the head of the food line. You no doubt... I think be shocked, at the very least, and outraged at this, which is more likely. I never heard of such a thing. That's discriminatory. And you'd be right. After all, this is a fellowship dinner. It's not a high-table dinner for elites. To bar a Christian from participating in a meal that is meant to cultivate fellowship between Christians because of his nationality something a person is born into and has no choice in the matter, well, is entirely inappropriate. It's the essence of racism. Dinners like this would, well, leave a bad taste in our mouths. But it could be worse. Worse than racism? Yeah. What could possibly worse be worse than that? Well, if we somehow convinced you that our segregation policy was biblical and part of the gospel. The gospel contains God's words of eternal life. If you trust God's gospel, then you have God's promise of eternal life. And if we're sly enough, we might be able to convince you that the gospel insists that one must become an American. America is God's new chosen race. Did you know that? The forefathers certainly believed that. Thomas Jefferson talks about the Creator in the Declaration of Independence and in the same breath mentions, quote, All men are created equal and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There. You see? By all men, he meant of course, all Americans. Didn't, didn't people come from far and wide for religious freedom to this country? Well, of course they did. You can be sure that that religion is Christianity. Why, even our 
currency promotes this idea. In God we trust. Here at PRBC, we see this country as God's country and pray that God, through the evangelistic efforts of sound churches, will save his people, the Americans. And when the last American is saved in God's program, he will return. Now, of course, I I say all of this with tongue-in-cheek. Hopefully you know I'm being facetious here. But as ridiculous as this position is, it is an example of how clever false teachers can be when they want to control others in the church. They just claim that their message is from God himself. And you might sit there with folded arms and a smirk in disbelief, but need I remind you that since the 1970s, well-meaning and intelligent people, doctors, lawyers, university professors, all over the world have been taken in by charismatic cult leaders and followed them even to their death over messages more preposterous than the one that I've just given you. And as preposterous as it seems, the one I gave you, it spread like wildfire in the first century churches. Oh, yes. We've been examining all of it in Antioch and in Galatia. The Judaizers were very clever. They were winsome, charismatic individuals. So clever, in fact, that they could could have opened a business in the Judean desert selling cast iron bathtubs to the Bedouins. That's how clever they were. They were that convincing. For whatever reason, sincere or not, they attached nationality to the gospel, and they taught that one must become a Jew first in order to be genuinely born again. And if you can get circumcised and keep the law, well, then you can eat with us. The Apostle Peter conducted himself at Antioch in such a way that lent support to this false message. So Paul confronts him. Though Paul recounts this event in his letter to the Galatians, no doubt to show that he fought for the true for the truth, even against the head apostle, <clears throat> he leaves for future churches a valuable principle here that we expressed this way. Rebuke immediately and publicly the believer who, for fear of man, adopts a lifestyle that distorts the gospel of grace before he eventually destroys the unity of the body. We've published that in your bulletin along with an outline I'm going to follow just for ease of um, communication. So very quickly, by way of review, we made two applications uh, of that principle so far. First application was this, rebuke the believer whose lifestyle for fear of man distorts the gospel of grace. That's in verses 11 and 12. Peter was guilty of this and Paul rebukes him. He pulled away from Gentile Christians, at least around the dinner table, which any member of that church would have found quite out of place. The saints at Antioch, who were mostly Gentile, mixed with a minority of Jewish Christians, were characterized by a sweet fellowship, a harmony that the Jerusalem church had not been able to achieve up to that point. It was one of the hallmarks of the Antioch church. Now, what made, her, what made Peter's act so sinful 
was that it segregated these two ethnic groups in the church and effectively destroyed the message of the gospel of grace. And at the same time, it also supported the Judaizers' false message that insisted on keeping the law. We argued that Peter was motivated to sin in this fashion because of the fear of those men. He feared them. Our last study last week picked up from there with verse 13 and the second application of this important passage. We said the consequences of such a sinful lifestyle will, if left unaddressed, eventually destroy the unity of the church. It will. There's no question that Peter's actions influenced the entire church at Antioch. The Jewish Christians were the first to follow his lead and segregate themselves from eating with Gentiles. Then Barnabas, of all people, was sucked into this and sided with Peter against Paul's position. And as was Paul's great fear, there uh, there is reason to believe that for a time, at least until the Jerusalem Council, even the Gentile Christians in Antioch began to accept the message that Peter's behavior communicated in hopes of maintaining an equal status with the Jewish Christians in the church. They wanted to eat with them. All of this, in all of this, we've, we've come to see not only the, the tragic consequences to the gospel of grace that one who is motivated by fear of man can bring by his sinful action, but also the importance of rebuking such action, or it will ruin the entire local church. Now, with, with that said, what's left for us in this passage is to speak to the nature of our rebuke. Okay, you've convinced me. I need to rebuke. So how do we do this? What does it look like? I want to prove to you this morning that the nature of our rebuke must be immediate and correspond to the nature of the sinner's offense. So let me flesh that out for you. There are actually four aspects, four aspects to the nature of biblical rebuke in verse 14. And the first one goes like this. Rebuke immediately. Rebuke immediately. We considered last time the grammar of verse 12, um, which argues that Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentile Christians, not abruptly, but gradually, until eventually he had totally separated himself from the Gentile Christians. The New American Standard Bible communicates this gradual withdrawing by inserting the word in the verse, began. It's italicized in your version, if you're reading the New American Standard Version. It goes like this. He, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, that is the Judaizers, he began to withdraw and began to separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. Now, this being the case, Paul, in all likelihood, would have, wouldn't have been there at the start of Peter's gradual separation. Why do I say that? Well, if he had, he, he would have said something. He wouldn't have allowed it to continue. Most likely, Peter arrived at Antioch a little ahead of Paul and with enough time to begin his gradual segregation. So when Paul returned from his first missionary journey, it was clear to him that Peter had laid some boundaries here that was evident to all. Now, to support the time frame, this gradual 
kind of withdrawal with Paul coming at the end. Paul indicates in verse 13 that Barnabas was carried away almost immediately as a result of their hypocrisy. His defection, so to speak, was more in the heat of the moment that, that was created by Peter and the other Jewish Christians there. So having said that, <clears throat> Paul didn't delay in addressing it once he discerned what was happening. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said. When I saw, I said. Once Paul saw their sin, he spoke up. The verb translated not straightforward that Paul uses to describe Peter and the Jewish Christians with him is the Greek word orthopodeo. Now, why do you need to know that? Well, we get our English word from it, orthopedics. And its literal meaning is then to walk straight, to walk upright, which is what orthopedics is dedicated to doing, helping you walking straight. Paul uses it here figuratively to accuse Peter and the Jewish Christians of not walking straight, that is, in the truth. If we wanted to be proverbial about this, we could say they weren't trusting in the Lord with all their heart, but rather on their own understanding of this situation. Therefore, their way was not straight. They were behaving in a way that was inconsistent with their confession and that God condemned. Now, beloved, there is a moral and spiritual way to live life according to the Bible. We don't have to guess. Christian life is not left up to one's interpretation. But the behavior of Peter and the Jewish brothers was contrary to the gospel that they themselves confessed and embraced. F.F. Bruce explains at this point in his commentary, quote, in Paul's eyes, they were taking the wrong road, which was leading them astray from the gospel of truth. They were not walking straightforwardly. Now, the application should be obvious to us. Confront a believer when his behavior is consistent or inconsistent with his confession and with gospel-centered living immediately. So the issue here is not whether we confront. We do. We have no choice in that. The issue for some is when. Some of you may have wrestled with how long do I wait to address the sin of another? I might answer that with another question. How long should you wait to repent for your own sin? An hour? A day? Months? No. Immediately, right? The longer you wait in both instances, the worse the situation gets. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a fair amount of tact and grace that goes into rebuking somebody. Oh, yes. There is certainly that. And sometimes we're unsure how to go about doing what God calls us to do in the, in the best and, and most loving way possible. So we pray and we ask for wisdom. Might that take some time? Yes. But in that case, you're on it. Right? You're on it. You've noticed that either something's not quite right with somebody or like Peter, he's blatantly sinned. And so you zero in on that. You know you're going to address it, no question about it. You've already begun preparing with prayer 
and with a proper strategy. We, we do this even in ordinary life. I get, I get the word that I'm going on a trip. It's going to happen. There's no question about it. And so I start preparing and I start getting ready so that when people come to collect me, I'm ready to go. I'll also say that timing can be a factor in being tactful as waiting for the right time to speak, but I would insist, beloved, that it is, it is not a time that's very long, not long at all. Unless there's something hard and fast that delays or, or even prevents your attempts to confront somebody, you, you don't need weeks, not even days, to figure out the wisest course of action, especially if the sinful situation carries with it serious consequences. We all, even unbelievers, practice this principle in other areas of our lives as well. The brother of your best friend works with you, has just died in an accident right in front of you on a job. How long would it take for you to tell your friend the bad news? Now, you know you're going to tell him. You have to. That's heavy news, though. It'll certainly upset your friend. Is it Is it wise to consider how might I convey this information to him? Yes, but you're on it. It's going to happen. You just need to figure out the best way to approach this delicate situation. And that time of preparation wouldn't take days, but literally minutes. In fact, you begin working on it in the car on your way over to see him. Now, in most cases, a sinning brother is not in danger of his life. But because you know that the wages of sin is death, because his actions will certainly influence others before too long, because the unity of the church and even the reputation of the faith before the world is at stake, you need to act fast. Sometime the situation would call for you to arrest someone's behavior before he hurts himself or does something awful. That is, to keep him from committing a sinful act that you know is going to come. You intercept him. You see Tim. Nobody, nobody here is named Tim. I know that. You see Tim, a member of the church, rather innocently getting into a car in the church parking lot after church with a woman who's not his wife. It's worth going over and checking it out before they drive off. Or ringing Tim if you're too late. Or maybe even driving over to him to Tim's house to see him. Well, that's a bit over the top, don't you think? I mean, policing someone's behavior? No, not if it's the kind it's it's the kind of one anothering that the Bible calls for, beloved. You care, so you act. We care for people in our family, right? a spiritual family. Paul rebukes Peter immediately as soon as he discerns what's going on, as soon as he is convinced that something sinful has taken place, he's on it. He doesn't delay. This particular sinful practice, by the way, had the potential to cripple the gospel ministry, especially since the, the one initiating it was not just some Jewish Christian in Antioch, but Peter, the head uh, apostle of the Christian church. He already began to turn the tide at Antioch. Number two, we want to rebuke not only immediately, but another aspect of the nature of rebuke is that we must rebuke in person. 
Rebuke immediately, rebuke in person. Now the precedent for rebuking a brother who has sinned is said in two classic passages in the New Testament on reconciliation. One is Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus lays responsibility on the offended to make things right with his offender. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. The other passage is Matthew 5, verses 23 to 25, where Jesus lays responsibility on the offender to go and make things right with the offended. He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled. Now, in this passage, Jesus makes reconciliation a prerequisite to worship. That's how important it is. Now, this is what I love about biblical reconciliation. Two people, an offender and the offended, both responsible to reconcile, and both are on their way to each other's house to make things right, and they bump into each other on the way. It has to work. It can never fail if that's the way it's done. We alluded to rebuke briefly in our treatment of verses 11 and 12. I want to actually repeat what I said there last time about verses 11 and 12. I said, always go to a person with whom you may have an issue. Jesus' command to confront a sinning brother is clear enough, and Paul's actions fall in line with this. It's so often the case, however, that we don't do this. We don't do it certainly right away, and many times we just don't. We have this urge to want to talk to five of our closest friends instead about it first. Did you know what he did last week? Well, let me tell you, sit, sit down. You won't believe this. I, I'm so offended. That, beloved, amounts to gossip. To sing someone's praises behind his back is perfectly fine, but to condemn or criticize him because of an offense is a no-no. That's what we said last time. We, we went on to say that it is so ingrained, however, in our culture to do just that, isn't it? If you see another believer in the church carrying on in a way that is not in keeping with his confession, or if he directly sinned against you, either way, you're responsible to point it out to him and to him alone, just between the two of you, Jesus says, Matthew eighteen fifteen. No one else should ever know. No one else need ever know. And when it's over, it's over. And if someone must confront someone else of the opposite sex, then he or she must arrange to do so in a way that avoids the appearance of evil and maintains all propriety. This is what Paul models, of course. Gossip, beloved, is never an option. And neither is just letting it go and hoping that time will heal it. The more time you let go by, the worse sinful behavior gets. Number three, the third aspect of the nature of a rebuke, is to do it publicly. When the sin was committed publicly. We do it immediately. We do it in person, and we do it publicly, if the sin was committed publicly. In verse 14, Paul says that he confronted Peter in the presence of all. Do you see that? And this might sound contrary to what we've just been talking about, that is the importance of going to a brother privately. Even if he refuses to listen, we have to bring it to two or three others. It's still... It's still a private affair between the five of us. 
We're to tell the church then only as a last resort. So what gives here? Well, it seems as if Paul skipped the first two steps. Well, not so fast. Paul would not have abused the church discipline process, and there are at least two good reasons for this. One is that Paul was well familiar with the process that Matthew would later write about in his gospel, Matthew 18. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul refers to stages 2 and 3 of church discipline and implies stage 1 has taken place. The context is in regard to sinning elders who persist in sin. Leaders sin just like the rest of us. And they are privileged to receive discipline if they refuse to repent, just like the rest of us. Listen to verses 19 and 20. Do not accept the accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fear, fearful of sinning. Knowing what we know about of church discipline, someone has to confront an elder whom he thinks is sinning before then the two or three witnesses get involved. And if they get involved, that's stage two. If they go on to tell it to the church, that's stage three. Also in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the entire church for celebrating an unholy sexual union between a man and his stepmother. His He instructs them to repent and then jumps right to the fourth stage of church discipline with this guy, which is to remove him from membership. He says, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The Lord will remove his protective hedge around this person that Satan may have his way as a form of divine discipline. <clears throat> Paul will also teach in Galatians 6.1 the first step of church discipline, which is one-on-one in private. And he explains there that every member of the church who is right with God is responsible to restore a sinning brother gently. The other reason that we can be sure that Paul is not abusing this process in Antioch by jumping to the third stage of church discipline with Peter, is that Peter committed his sin in public. Peter's sin is plain, uh, plain to all. He did it in plain sight. Everyone in Antioch not only knew of Peter's actions, but the Jewish Christians followed his lead, as we argued already. The Gentile Christians probably started adjusting their understanding of things in light of Peter's precedent for how Jews and Gentiles should fellowship with each other in the church going forward. So in this case, there was no need for Paul to maintain the boundaries of privacy with the initial two steps of discipline. He was quite justified in going right to stage three and rebuking Peter before everyone, which, by the way, also at the same time, was his way to instruct the membership as to their responsibility in this particular matter. Sin done in public demands to be addressed in public. My first pastorate, there was a member of a church, now I'm going way back, uh, who was going to marry an unbeliever. 
And the family managed to keep the relationship, the proposal, the engagement, and the wedding plans all under the radar of the church until the family put it in the paper for all to see. Once made public and we learned of it, I called a church discipline meeting as soon as I could. Many in the church who were loyal friends with the family put their relationship above the truth and they protested vehemently, accusing me of mishandling Matthew 18 because the first two steps seemed to have been ignored, which, by the way, wouldn't have mattered to them anyway. They would have found another reason not to discipline a close friend and still go to the wedding. The very fact that they thought, because I had not kept strictly to the first two steps, that discipline was not appropriate, and they could celebrate an unholy union, shows you where they were coming from anyway. But I had not overlooked anything. When a sin is committed in public, it demands public rebuke. No need to protect the boundaries of privacy anymore. Now, public rebuke must be done, however, and I'll slow down here, in a decent and orderly fashion. That requires that the elders of the church get involved and orchestrate a meeting. They would mark the individual who is being disciplined and rehearse with the body how at this stage they should show love to the erring brother by calling him to repentance. This is, this is a rescue mission, right? This is a way of restoring someone back to his relationship with God and his people. This is a great act of love. This is God's way of loving a wayward believer. Four and finally, the last aspect of the nature of rebuke is to point out to the sinning member exactly what his sin is. Exactly. Rebuke carries such negative overtones, doesn't it? We know. Call it what you will, correction, discipline. Most find it offensive and believe that it, is, it has no place in Jesus' church where everyone is to love each other. Apparently, rebu- rebuke is taboo in America, along with parents disciplining their children and police arresting violent protesters. Those who argue against godly discipline in the church, they understand very little about biblical love. Church discipline is an act of love. So says the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 of his letter. As a father disciplines his child, so God disciplines those he loves. Conscientious parents know that it's loving to correct their children, and that without it, their children can get into all kinds of trouble, even hurt themselves, or grow up with, without any sense of moral right and wrong. And beloved, we have several younger generations today growing up just like this, who are the future leaders of this nation. May God have mercy on our country. Mm-hmm. Believers on the receiving end of our rebuke should see that we love them, that we are out for their best interest, that we are there to help them walk straight. We're kind of spiritual orthopedics, right? We need to spell it out for them in no uncertain terms so that they know what way their actions contradict their confession. Maybe they have no idea. 
Paul made no bones about Peter's error, and he told him exactly what he was doing wrong in hopes of reversing it and for the sake of the gospel. I want to show you how Peter spelled it out, or how Paul, rather, spelled it out for Peter. Paul knew Peter was acting hypocritically. We know that already. It says that in the text. So his rebuke came in the form of a rhetorical question. Probably more was said to Peter than what was recorded here. As you know, in narrative, Scripture often highlights only what it wants us to know or to prove a point. Now, rhetorical questions can be a powerful way to drive home a point to someone. They don't ask for answers. They don't gather data. The answer is implied in the question. And in that way, they they are statements... Um, but they're stated in such a way that really puts someone's back against the wall. When God asked Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? He wasn't looking for an answer. He wasn't looking for data. No, he was making a statement. You deliberately disobeyed me. And see what happened. I told you. At times it's in in certain circumstances, depending on the relationship that we have with a person, a sharp rebuke may be in order. And that's something that's part of our tact and and, and being gracious and knowing the situation as well as the person. I might take issue with a complete stranger on the debate stage in a rather gentlemanly way. We learned this at Cambridge. Sir, I believe the premise or your premise is completely inaccurate and has led you to an incorrect conclusion. If you would allow me, sir, I'll explain why it's not feasible for you to proceed in the current course of action. Hmm, that's nice. On a debate stage, I'd convey the exact same sentiments very differently to my kid brother. Are you kidding, Charles? I'm surprised at you. You're way off base. You need to wake up and take some responsibility for your actions. Paul's statement to Peter is brilliant because it shows Peter and the entire church his obvious hypocrisy and in a way that that's hard for him to deny. And and I don't want you to miss the meaning behind Paul's words here. Let me read the verse. It says, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's it's, it's a game stopper. In the first place, Paul makes reference to Peter's nationality to make the point that Peter is not bound by it, right? Peter was born a Jew, grew up in a Jewish culture. That would suggest that Peter, once upon a time, felt most comfortable living as a Jew with Jewish lifestyle and certainly according to the Levitical dietary laws and also the rabbinical laws about ceremonial washing before eating. Now, that just makes sense. The wonderful and miraculous thing about Peter's life since having been born again is that he was able to divorce himself from all his Jewish upbringing, certainly anything that was now obsolete in the New Covenant for sure. But on a practical level, and this is what Paul's alluding to, Peter could live comfortably in Gentile regions with Gentile customs, including eating food with Gentiles. God saw to this back in Acts 10 when he, with his instructional vision of the sheet. Paul highlights Peter's habit 
of living like a Gentile. He says, you live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. Now, the, t- the, the tense of this verb to be, to be you, you live like, that's really the verb to be in Greek, in the Greek sentence, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. It's in the present tense. And it refers in this context not to a one-time act, but a habit. It's a habit. In other words, living like a Gentile for Peter was no longer a challenge. He'd been happily doing this ever ever since his time in Caesarea with Cornelius. Living among Gentiles and participating in their way of life was nothing new to him as his actions showed in Antioch. And Paul knew this. Now, in the second place, it is against this background of Peter's admission through faith in Christ that Gentile Christians are true, his true spiritual brothers, and his alacrity with which he would eat with them. Paul makes his rhetorical question. He makes it against this background. He says, okay, this is what you've been living like. And so Peter would feel the sting of the rhetorical question. How is it then that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, Paul says, you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews when you, being a Jew, live comfortably like a Gentile. Shame on you. That's the idea. The word translated compelled to act like a Jew. It's actually one word. It occurs here only in Galatians. It's Paul's word. He was fond of using these kinds of compound words. It literally means to make someone a Jew, or we might say to Judaize them. And it's from this word that we have made up the word Judaizers. Peter was, by his actions, essentially compelling Gentile Christians to live like Jews, and that would have been quite in keeping with the Judaizers' false gospel. Peter needed to understand exactly what he was doing, even if he did did separate from Gentiles out of consideration for the Jews back in Jerusalem who could have wreaked severe persecution from the Zealots if the Zealots found out what Peter was doing in Antioch. We, We raised that last time. But in that case, his sincerity does not justify his actions. They're still sinful. It was not a good reason, and he was clearly wrong, hypocritical, and Paul wanted to make sure that Peter understood all of that. If Peter hadn't, he did now, and so did everyone else. Now, in closing, let me give you just two important implications of our understanding of this biblical discipline from verse 14. The first implication is that we Christians are responsible to stand for the truth. We're responsible. Every Christian is responsible. Paul's purpose for mentioning this incident with Peter in his Galatian letter is obviously to show the Galatians that what was going on in Galatia was nothing new but part of an old and wicked plot by false brothers to destroy the gospel of grace and with it the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul was just as determined now as he was back in Antioch to fight against it and stand for the preservation of the gospel of grace. Now we know that the church will not fail, right? 
Jesus is building his church, and he himself told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's right. But let's not forget that part of the means by which Jesus builds his church are the faithful preaching and teaching of the word, exposing error, contending for the faith, imitating Christ. Just a short list. The Lord will sovereignly work all things to the good of his people. Yes and amen. But let's not use that as an excuse to be inactive or irresponsible. In fact, the Bible calls us to be responsible specifically because of God's sovereign work. Remember what he told the Philippians? He said it is... He says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because, reason, it is God who works in you to do and to, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. The sovereign work of God toward a particular purpose, the same purpose for which we work, engenders us all the more to work for the same purpose. The second implication is that the church, is that church discipline in all its stages, is God's way of bringing about unity, harmony, and reconciliation in the body. Or restoring, perhaps is a better word. As unpopular and offensive as the modern church finds it, and, and resorts instead to secular alternatives, we need to preserve this. Paul may not have won the day in Antioch after rebuking Peter, but eventually he prevailed. And Peter is proof of that. I love this part. While there is no record of Peter's repentance of this incident in Scripture, we know that his actions eventually precipitated the Jerusalem Council where Paul did win the day with Peter's support. Peter obviously had a change of heart. When? We don't know. But he did. Was there repentance? Yes. Was there forgiveness? Yes. Was there reconciliation? Absolutely. They worked together at the council. What a wonderful turn of events. And, and Peter would go on to write two epistles to the church in Asia Minor, which D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo say in their New Testament introduction were, quote, mainly if not exclusively Gentile, end quote. Why is that noteworthy? Because Peter addresses these Gentile Christians in Old Testament terminology befitting Israel. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Here's a little bit of Isaiah. For you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. If there was any question in Peter's mind whether Gentile Christians were on equal plane with Jewish Christians, there's no more question. Paul had done, or I should say, Peter, Peter also warned the churches of false teachers, much like Paul did before, years before. And he played such a significant role in preserving the unity of the church in Gentile regions that F.F. F. Bruce, he quotes J.D. Dunn with approval here, who calls Peter, quote, the bridge man 
who did more than any other to hold together the diversity of first century Christianity, end quote. What's miraculous about this is that it just points to the great work of God. He He did it in Peter's life. He'll do it in our lives. So we must we must hold to the truth and expect great things from God. Father in heaven.